Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Inside the Archives, the fourth episode of XRT's newest podcast, picking the minds of XRT DJs and hearing their opinions on a variety of musical topics, as well as sharing the stories that have helped to define their career. I've been fortunate enough to observe Marty Leonard's conduct interviews for several years now and am continually amazed by the consistency he carries out in his conversations, whether he's talking to headliners at Lollapalooza or chatting here at XRT with bands that are taking part in their first ever interview. His style is unmatched and is something he's owned through years of experience. I had a simple question for him that ended up prompting nearly an hour of conversation with one another. How do you interview a rock star? We discuss his philosophies on interviewing people, regardless of their stature, as well as touch on a variety of subjects, including what he does when an interview starts heading south, the biggest challenges as an interviewer, and how he's seen artists like Wilco, Spoon, and Arcade Fire, to name a few. One of the things that I've noticed is he almost has a personal relationship with these artists, where it's not so much a radio interview as it is two friends catching up over a long period of time. You take bands that have started off on small stages doing their first ever radio interviews to now headlining festivals like Lollapalooza. And when Marty talks to them, it's like you're sitting down at a diner booth having a nice chat over lunch together. So I'm going to pick his mind about that and how he stays so calm in his interviews as well is another thing that impresses me. We'll also round out what else we have coming up here on Inside the Archives, including the latest music news and headlines. It has been a couple of busy weeks since our last podcast. We had Radiohead and the Smashing Pumpkins both announced tours, and both of those bands will be playing at the United Center this summer. There's also uh, the latest Smashing Pumpkins drama that appears to have simmered for the time being ever since the tour and album was announced, but we'll catch into that craziness in a little bit. And Vicki Cornell, Chris Cornell's wife, spoke on TV for the first time since his passing and gave a pretty powerful statement, which we'll cover, and... Another interesting tidbit that came over the past couple weeks was a producer of a Prince song put up his portion of the songwriting credit for sale on eBay, something that I think might become a trend in the not-too-distant future. In the meantime, let's go Marty on Marty and chat with Marty Leonards. Marty Leonard's is heard weekday afternoons from 1 to 4 p.m. on XRT. You also know him as XRT's festival correspondent, providing backstage coverage and artist interviews at festivals like Lollapalooza, Bonnaroo, Pitchfork, and more. Think of an artist here on XRT, and chances are Marty has interviewed him. So what I want to know from Marty is pretty simple. What's that like? What? Interviewing people? Well, yeah. So we S- have uh, sitting down, uh, sitting down, and talking to people about their music and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Sit- sitting down and it's talking cool. to people. It's so pretty great. <laughs> it's pretty great. I've I've had the opportunity to meet so many people and musicians and artists, um, 
and 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 uh, meet meet them as as a peer, which is the cool thing. When you're doing an interview, you're no longer just a, a fan. You're not someone who's saying, "Wow, I really love your music, dude. That's so great." Uh, you're you're doing it for a professional reason. You're sitting down and, and chatting with someone about their music, about what goes into what they do, what their career has been like, um, all that, you know. And and to do it as a peer, like the first time I did one with a big, huge, uh, famous Hall of Fame, legendary rock star, um, was with Eric Clapton, and I did it in a in a hotel room. They sent me out to uh, Hollywood. They sent me to uh, to a hotel in Hollywood where I met he, uh, Eric and also J.J. Kale, who had written a bunch of songs that Eric had done. He was the songwriter. He wrote uh, They Call Me the Breeze. He wrote Cocaine, wrote After Midnight. And they had a long, long relationship, and they put a record out together, so they wanted to do press for it. So I got sent out to L.A. to go to a hotel room, and it was just uh, those two guys, me. Oh, yeah, and there was a film crew, too which was a, a little intimidating, but you forget about them. But I, I, I'm, I'm sitting in this chair across from Eric Clapton, and as I'm talking to him, I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, I'm talking to Eric Clapton. He's sitting right <laughs> there. And Eric just dropped a name. He just said, when George and I did this, he's talking about George Harrison. That's unbelievable. <laughs> so I kept that stuff you know, inside. And uh, talking to him, though, it was, you know, very, very professional and, uh, and it was kind of cool. So uh, that's, that's the best thing about, about interviews is that you're on a, you know, the same plane with them, sort of. Yeah, and that's one thing I've noticed. So if any of you have watched our festival coverage at Lollapalooza, Marty's the one interviewing people. I'm the one behind the camera. So I've had a firsthand experience into how you compose your interviews with artists just sitting down casually talking to them. How do you stay so relaxed in an environment like that? Well, I, I think a big part of it is uh, being prepared. Preparation is a huge part um, because I don't know these people really. I've never met them. But I, I try to find out as much as I can about them. And, uh, I mean, that helps me relax. Mm -hmm. That that helps me stay uh, kind of even keeled. But... Um, I don't know. I just have an easy time sitting down talking to people like we're doing right now, Marty. <laughs> um, and this is kind of interesting, too. I mean, we should talk about this. This is uh, Marty talking to Marty. Uh, this could be the precursor to a forthcoming podcast, uh, a regular podcast of Marty, Marty talking to people named Marty. And we did this recently. We did. We did it with Martin Courtney of Real Estate. Uh, in the bowels of the Chicago Theater, actually in a room where there were washing machines. I, in a very eerie manner, all the washing machines started rumbling after you mentioned that. They were rumbling, yes, yeah. they were. They went into not quite a spin cycle, but it was sort of uh, a lower, a, a lower, <laughs> uh, I think, a permanent press cycle. But, um, yeah, so, so we talked with Martin Courtney, and it was the first time that any of us Marty Rosenbaum, Marty Leonard's, and Martin Courtney had been in the same room with two other Martys. Uh, there were three of us, and we've never experienced that. I know that you probably have the same experience as I do. Uh, being in school, you're generally the only Marty, right? Yeah. The only one. Very rarely was there another Marty, but never in my class and never really in my grade. I had a Marty in a class, and it was in grade school. I don't remember what his last name was, but he was really good at math, and... Uh, I always felt bad about that because I wasn't, and he was the Marty who was good at math. Well, not, I, I, you know, I, I thought maybe we could bond. I could, could you help me? Can I, can I copy your, 
but we never really sat next to each other. They would never put two Martys next no. to each other. That's Well, naturally, you get compared and have to go up against one another, too, which can create a whole set of problems. There you go. Yeah. There you go. But, well, uh, but that was fun talking to Martin Courtney, and that's where this started. Um, one thing I've... Should we keep talking about Martys, about the name? We, we can segue the off there, yeah. Can we? Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've had this experience, but this has actually happened in interviews and meeting other uh, musicians, especially from uh, England. Uh, when you introduce yourself and you say, hi, I'm Marty, and they go, oh, hello, Artie. <laughs> and I'm like, no, 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 not Artie, uh, Marty. Uh, right, Artie. No, <laughs> think Martin. Oh, Martin. <laughs> you know, I've, I haven't had the Artie experience. <laughs> what I've noticed is it almost sounds like they're saying multi, like I want a chocolate malt. Multi. It's an, it's an L instead of an R, and it's very it's a very, it's a very grizzled sounding name when you have a British accent like Marty. I met a guy from Germany recently named Martin, but he was Martin. He was he, he pronounced it <laughs> so Martin. <laughs> like you couldn't, and, and I said to him, I said you could never be a Marty. There's no, no. way you're not a Marty. You're a Martin. Yeah. I'm a Marty. You're a Marty. And here we are. And you're way more dignified than either of us. Mm, true. In that true. sense. <laughs> but it was fun talking to Martin Courtney, you know, another Marty like that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was a good interview. And, and it also raises the question, like, there are weird places where you have interviews. We've talked about two so far, one being in a hotel room in Beverly Hills in Hollywood, and the other one in a, in a room with washing machines in the bowels of the Chicago theater. So yeah. you never know where these things are going to happen. Well, and I think what's funny about that is, before I got into radio, the preconceived notion of an interview is it's a very professional setup sitting in a studio like we are right now with microphones, a producer, a very enclosed private space. But nine times out of ten, that's not the case. Right. No, a lot of times outside. Yeah. A lot of times, um, you know, we, we've done them. Uh, we, we did one recently for a performance that took place at uh, Millennium Park. We did that just standing in, uh, in Millennium Park. Yeah, right outside of the bean. Right outside the bean. Yeah. yeah. And we've done them on the roof of the Prudential building, that one with uh, Andrew Bird. Right. We did that there. So there there are many different places you can do do these. Right. And how much does that play into the interview? I mean, you mentioned earlier about preparing yourself mm-hmm. with notes about facts about the artists that you're interviewing, but when you are placed in an unconventional setting, how does that play into it? Well, the unconventional setting becomes part of uh, of the interview. Like when we were talking with Andrew Bird, I uh, was being surrounded by the Chicago skyline and all these cool buildings on Michigan Avenue that we could see from from that space where we were. Uh, you may recall I, I just I asked him, "What's your uh, you're, you're an artist. You you probably are a fan of architecture. What's your favorite building in Chicago?" As we're standing here, and he looked down the street and he mentioned the Fine Arts Building, and then he went into a big huge story about how at the Fine Arts Building is where he started playing violin. And he had lessons there, and he liked going there, and it was really important in his development as a musician. So that wouldn't have happened if we weren't standing on that party patio at the Prudential Building, right? right? Yeah, well, for those that haven't been up there, the Prudential Building is facing south. You're overlooking Millennium Park, the J. Pritzker Pavilion, yeah. directly south. A block east is Michigan Avenue, so you're right in the heart of downtown Chicago. And you could, I, I think you could see the Art Institute from where we're at up there, and we That's can, where we mentioned. We it. can actually see into the rooms of the uh, modern wing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And we talked about that too because he had recently done something there. Right. So, so that was cool. But All that right. was the day you may remember. Uh, I had l- really bad laryngitis, and I could yes. barely talk. I could barely, barely talk. Yeah, and on the eleventh floor, it's quite windy, so you have to battle the elements. Oh my god! 
on top of trying to battle laryngitis. I know. See, here's the thing, Marty. You've been around for so many of of the interviews over the past, uh, you know, however many years you've been part of the radio station. You know more about the interviews than I do because I'm like in the in the moments of doing those. So um, if there's anything you want to talk about in any interviews that that we have done together, just mention, just bring it up. Yeah. Then I can talk about it. But uh, off the top of my head, I don't know. There's right. so many of them. Well, and that's, I mean, that's one of the interesting parts about being here is you get so immersed in these yeah. that you, you, it's not like you lose track of it because as you mentioned, you have to bring it up to remember it. But you do it with such a frequency that it all kind of blends together in that sense. But mm-hmm. each of the interviews still stands out. So that, that leads me very well into my next question. When you are interviewing an artist, what's more difficult? Talking to someone that's done interviews thousands of times or someone that's on their first round of interviews? Hmm. Um, people who've done them a lot are way more comfortable in the interview, you know. But people who haven't done that many are just kind of excited that someone's even talking to them. Right. And most of the experience they have with interviews, in fact, with everyone has with interviews, is that they do a lot of these chats with people who don't really know what they're doing and aren't very good at it. So um, not to say that I'm, you know, uh, I don't know, who's, who's a great interviewer. I was going to say Charlie Rose, but we don't need to bring him up right now. Right. Um, Let's go with uh, Tavis Smiley. No, he, he, he too. He too? He went, he went down on a Me Too thing he, also. He did. All right, well, he's out. <laughs> well, anyway, you know, with some really great interviewer, um, I don't, I, I'm me. That's who, that's who I am. I, I, I have my own, my own thing. But uh, they're, they're always really appreciative of the fact that, uh, A, I'm prepared. I know something about it that I can make it a welcoming sort of environment. Um, and it takes the uh, onus off them. They're no longer nervous. That's the main thing is that for some reason I make people feel less nervous when they're talking to me. Someone like Britt Daniel who has done a million interviews, Britt Daniel of Spoon. For some reason, when he's with me, you can see it as he walks in. He's like, oh, great. Okay, it's you. Uh, it just changes the whole thing. And I've, I've had that a number of times with people. Um, uh, Matt Schultz from Cage the Elephant, after an interview we did at, uh, at Lollapalooza, he's like, wow, it's so good talking to you. You wouldn't believe the boneheads I've been talking to all day. Not to disparage anyone else, but, you know, this is what he what he tells me. He goes, it's really great. He goes, you know what you're talking about. Right. And the setup that we have at Lollapalooza is you're in a tent. It's about 8 feet by 10 feet, not very big. And surrounding you all across a row is different radio stations. So artists will literally right. hop from tent to tent to tent to tent. Right. And I'd have to imagine on their sake, it, it is refreshing to come somewhere where a, you see a familiar face, but B, right. you already know what you're going to get out of it, and it doesn't keep you on your toes. Well, I think XRT has a lot to do with it because of the uh, stat- stature that XRT has in in the the rock world because you know we've been around for so long, and that I've been doing these interviews pretty much uh, nonstop for you know 20 years or so. So um, yeah, there's that that all co- comes into play, and they know they're at a friendly place, and they know that we're going to know what we're talking about. That's a big part of it. I do like talking to people who've never done it before because a lot of times it's totally refreshing and crazy. Right. You know, there's not that much much to bring up. Um, you just do some research about their upbringing, you know, how they started playing together in high school, and a lot of times that's what it is, and that opens up really good stories. Like 
um, Marion Hill, for example, um, duo. Uh, they formed in Philadelphia. They had uh, they had kind of a hit with a song that was used in an Apple commercial uh, last year. Uh, and they come around town often, but they're, they're, it's a, a, a man and a woman who met when they were in middle school when they were doing theater together. And that's where the name of their band came from, Marion Hill. And I didn't know this. It just came up in the uh, interview. Marion Hill came because they were in a production of The Music Man. And she played Marion, the librarian, and he played Henry Hill. And that's stuck with them all these years. Hmm. That's where Marion Hill comes from. Hmm. And that just came up. You know, as we were chatting, so that was kind of fun. You can't really talk to someone like in Spoon and say, "Where did the name come from of your band?" That's right. Like the lamest question. It's the lamest question ever. It's like always, like, "So, where did you get your name?" Yet, it's something that's usually really interesting. It's rarely uh, something that came from out of nowhere. There's some thought that goes into it, so it's easier to ask that question of younger bands, right? You know, and uh, but. I always try to preface that like, okay, I know this is the lamest question ever. It's like the inter- interview 101 question. Where'd you get your name? Uh, but oftentimes they're really into talking about it. Right. Well, and it seems like interviewing 101, what are your biggest influence? Where did your name come from? What are your band's right. origins? It's questions that you're not obligated to ask, but you're almost obligated to ask artists where that kind of stuff comes from. Kind of. Or- how, how do you, I mean, how do you get around that and, uh, implement those types of questions if it is a band that you have spoken to before maybe not the relationship you share with someone like Britt daniel spoon or you've mm-hmm. spoken to him several times already but you know maybe your third or fourth time speaking to someone well like an older band and and uh, spoon will be the uh, example again each record they do each new record comes with some new thing with some influence so like the last spoon record uh brit was really affected by the deaths of both Bowie and Prince. So that's reflected in what some of that record sounds like. So maybe you see that in another interview, maybe you've read it in a in an article or a review or something and you just have to somehow figure out a way to bring that up without saying so Prince really influenced this record, but like, you know, there's just a way to do it conversationally and so that it's not really um a big question. But that's another thing, too. You have to ask questions. Otherwise, you have to put it in question form. Right. And you can have a conversation, but oftentimes it won't, they won't, they won't go there. Right. Well, what, is that one of the biggest challenges you face in differentiating yourself from other interviewers? Mm, I don't know. I don't know about differentiating myself from other interviewers. I'm just trying to do it the way that I feel comfortable with doing it. And, and that is to make it conversational, but also still have it as an interview. Uh, because if you make it too conversational, they're not, you're not going to get an answer. Right. Well, and as we've seen, if you get the right artist, they will talk on and on and on. And that's another challenge you must face is trying to capture the content of the conversation, but also keeping it within you know the time-specified format that right. radio that, does lend itself to. That can to. happen. That can happen. Um, this is sort of funny. I did a... I hosted a screening, a panel discussion of a screening for uh, the Wax Tracks documentary, uh, Wax Tracks Record Store and Record Label. They put together a documentary, the, the entire story of how the owners, Jim and Danny, got together in uh, Denver, moved to Chicago, opened the store, started the label, blah, blah, blah. So one of the members of the panel that I was 
I was hosting was Jello Biafra, uh, the guy from uh, the Dead Kennedys. And he's also, he's run for mayor of San Francisco. He's a guy who's a huge personality and talks, talks, talks. And he knew them from his days in Denver. So I was told before that your biggest challenge with this panel is making sure he doesn't take over the panel because he will. Right. And I was able to do that. I was able to let him talk for a while and then just kept listening for something that he would say that I could bounce off to grab someone else to bring him in. And, uh, yeah, that was that was that was a, a unique experience because I had like nine people, right? And you have to fill that time. You have to fill the time, but we don't want to fill it all with with uh, Jello, right? Well, in in situations like that, either a where you have someone that tends to dominate the conversation, or b you are interviewing groups of people, as we've seen like during Lollapalooza, we'll have artists that bring four members of their band come by, but only one person talks, and the other three may be oh, and contributing then they, here and there. Oh, and then they talk, but they're not on mic. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's a good one. Yeah. So you hear them in the That's background. That's always a good one. I yeah. think this record was fun. That's why I have but, to uh, say thank you so much at uh, festivals where uh, you know you have been involved in the planning, and you have at least three microphones there, right. so everyone has a mic. <laughs> Yeah, that's really bad. That happens. I had a guy once talking into a mic that wasn't even plugged in. It oh, was no. just a mic that was laying there. He picked it up and wasn't. There was no wire. There was nothing. It, you know, that's when you got to pivot and say, "This is great practice." I actually haven't been recording at all today, so oh, yeah. I'm glad we could get warmed up another. But going oh, no. going back to the original question, when oh, you do have, uh, <laughs> see, this is this is why it's great. You can segue into completely different topics. But we're talking about Jello Biafra. Biafra. Yeah, you were. You were warned about him dominating the conversation in the mm-hmm. panel, and you had nine other people. Very nice in. guy, though. I really like talking to him. Yeah. When there is a situation like that, or mm-hmm. even if it's a one-on-one with another artist where you know they're going to talk on and on and on, how, mu- how much of that conversation do you revert back to your pre-planned notes, and then do you have to improvise on the fly as you're speaking with them? Um, yeah. The pre-planned notes, ma- mainly my notes – are scrawls of information that I've gathered, and I can barely read them because they're like all over the place. I generally don't write down too many questions, but um, I don't know. I, I have a, a flow of where I, I would like it to go, but sometimes it gets knocked off. That whatever. Um, Is that something that you've been doing your entire career? Or well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. When you're at a festival, mostly most times, those aren't live. You're recording them, right? right. So I always feel just keep talking and talking and talking. And you're going to get something in there. If it was like three minutes live on the air, and this is what it is, you have these three minutes. That is a different kind of kind of interview. That one doesn't really go much into anything because you don't really have the time for that. Or you have to have a specific question that you're asking. Right. You know? But then that takes away the conversational aspect of it. So that's why those interviews sometimes go on and on when we're doing them because I'm just looking for something. Right. And and we run into that problem sometimes with, a say, like a Studio X or on the uh, performance stage when the band is playing, which adds in a whole different level of weirdness because now they're more concerned with what they're playing, their songs, and suddenly now they have to talk. Right. They have to answer a few questions. So... Those you have to keep really, really focused, you know? Yeah. Unless you're with Ben Harper, who then goes off and talks for like a long, long time, you know, <laughs> or Warren Haynes or someone like that. Yeah. Well, I think the audience in that 
setting knows what to expect too from the artists. Right. Lot, but with those diehard fans, they see the show. Well, that's true. But yeah. when you're keeping in mind that this is on the radio or on a webcast or something, you know, it has to be a little tighter than that. Right. But uh, I don't know. I just like to have these long, long conversations. Just who knows what you're what you're going to get. Right. Well, and I think that's an interesting point you bring up because earlier on in your career, what was the main form of interview that we were doing? Was it over the air? Was it a phone interview? Artists mm. coming in the studio. The main were artists coming into the studio on the air live. Were you still able to have those types of conversations? Well, it was a different time, and uh, they went longer. Mm. <laughs> yes, they were long. Uh, Patty Smith once. One of the first uh, on-air interviews I did, I had done a few, but she was in town and she had played the previous, like maybe two years before that, she played this comeback show. The first time she had played in Chicago in 20 years. And it was an XRT holiday concert for the kids at the Riv. And it was this incredible show where she caught some vibe from being in the city of her birth. And with the uh, audience, the reaction the audience was giving her, she said that it was the greatest show she's ever performed, okay? So she came back a couple years later on the day before Mother's Day, and she and the band came to the radio station on a Sunday afternoon. I was on the air on a Sunday afternoon. Come in on a Sunday afternoon, and just her. She comes in the studio. They're not playing. They're just talking. And we talked. We went like 45 minutes. That's unheard of these days. <laughs> without without a song being played. Right. Just talking. It was Patti Smith. But I did get her to read some poetry. I, I got her to read something from uh, from her book. and uh, Or she recited the Declaration of Independence or something. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but it, that would never, ever happen. There would be a big hook coming from somewhere on that one. You know, that just wouldn't happen. So it, it was different. And uh, artists would come in and chat and play a song acoustically in the studio. So it was never really mixed all that well, at least in the beginning. Mm-hmm. You're like mixing it yourself. And then we started having an engineer come in and, and, and mix it and record it, you know, when we started doing the XRT records. But um, yeah, so that, that doesn't really exist anymore, especially since we built uh, the powers that be, the uh, CBS, when, when they owned us, built the uh, performance stage. Right. And, you know, now that's like a nightclub. Do you think that those experiences have helped shape your interviews today? Which? The ones where Patti Smith will come into the studio and you guys will just chat on oh, and yeah, on for yeah. 45 minutes or even having to do that in-person interview. Well, it let me, um, it let me know that I could uh, talk with someone who, um, you know, I, I was uh, in, uh, in awe of and... Again, like the Clapton thing, just mm-hmm. have have a conversation as a, on a peer to peer basis. That's that's the main thing. You know, it just makes you relax and makes you be uh, really comfortable. And then, like in the first second, you know, you know exact right off the bat when you say, uh, "Patty Smith, how you doing?" And the way her response, you're like, "Oh, this is gonna go okay." Yeah. Because I had the same thing with Tom York at Bonnaroo. Uh, the first time we went to Bonnaroo, Radiohead was playing, and. Uh, I'm, uh, someone comes up to me from the Radio Bonnaroo thing and says, uh, we have uh, an interview with Tom York, and we want you to go to Nashville. We're going to put you on a bu- on a, on a, in a van, and you're going to go to Nashville, and you're going to meet him in a hotel, and you're going to talk to him, and this interview is going to be used by everybody. That's not intimidating at all. I'm like, okay. And I didn't even have his uh, – it was for his solo record. Generally, that's what happens. When someone like Tom York or someone in a band – is is all of a sudden available for radio interviews is because they have something special that they're not that sure about. It's like their solo project. Right. Right. So so we go to the hotel and I hadn't even heard the record but uh 
the guy was with the, uh, a guy who was in high school. He went with me, and he had already um, he had a, an illegal download of the record. He got it from someone, so I was able to listen to it on the in the van on on the way there. So at least I knew what the music was. But when he walked into the room, you know, I'm really nervous, like, oh my god, Tom Young. But then he walks into the room and he's just like you know, uh, sort of a little guy and he's wearing this suit and he looked, he's quirky. And I was like, oh, this is going to be fine. <laughs> this is going to be great. You know, and then uh, the friend I was with was wearing a, a T-shirt. Um, what band was it? Uh, I don't want to say Sonic Youth or something. And he looks and goes, oh, wow, great band. <laughs> so suddenly it was just, it was cool, but I don't know. Yeah, well, there's a, there, there's another question I want to ask after this about you know, challenges that you face. You mentioned where he walked in the room and he said, oh, this is going to go great. So yeah. I'm going to ask that after this one where Tom York, who's doing interviews only because he's unsure of himself and artists of that nature who generally aren't available all of a sudden make themselves mm-hmm. available. Where do you draw the line in talking only about their solo work, their work on that record as well, opposed to their larger band? Cause here's the thing. These interviews that I'm doing, you know, these aren't like big celebrity pieces that are going to be part of a 12-page article in Vanity Fair. Those are usually conducted by someone who spends like three weeks with the artist, Mm -hmm. and they know what this is going to be. This is, you know, Rolling Stone's big cover story, whatever. The ones we're doing are for a specific reason, really, and it's for that project. And it's to get some content that we can uh, that we can use, and that we can cut up and play before a song. Try to find something specific about this project, why they're doing it. You're not going to say talk about the band's upcoming tours. Oftentimes, you're told before this happens, you can't talk about anything but this record. You can't talk about anything except for this song. This is what it is. Wow. Don't bring up anything about uh, the arrest. Don't bring up anything about their marriage breaking up. Don't bring up that stuff. It's not about that. It's about this. So you already know that. How much creative freedom do you have in those types of interviews? Um, I don't know. You're, you kind of just want to get the story. You want to get the story of what they want to talk about. And I think that oftentimes, rather than asking them questions that's going, that are going to poke and prod them about this, you're asking them, you're asking them in a way to tell the story of what they want to tell. Right. Without, you know, in trying to do that conversationally. So you the, know what they want to say. Right. Lead them through it so that it's really comfortable for them to do it. Right. So in this situation, you mentioned that Tom York walked in the room. Mm-hmm. He said, this is all going to be great. Yeah. How do you know when an interview is going to be challenging? Um, or if an artist isn't even interested in participating, that they're doing it to fulfill an obligation. You generally would... Uh, I think you would know that by all the direction you get. (laughs) Um, I don't know. It doesn't happen very often. It really doesn't. Um, I have had uncomfortable interviews only a handful of times. Really? Yes. Um, And I think it might have a lot to do with the timing of when I'm doing these, the time in in, uh, where we are, in in the the times that we live in. Because I think at one point doing antagonistic interviews – was expected of an artist. It was expected of them to be a jerk, um, to not be forthcoming, to to size up the interviewer and make fun of them mm-hmm. or whatever. Rarely does that happen anymore. Uh, 
other artists who now are older and who maybe did that at one point in their career no longer do. They don't. They're old, and and they're not they're not that petulant uh, rock star. They they now have had a career. They know what they're supposed to be doing. Younger artists right now, for the most part, are so pro. It's it's unbelievable because yeah. this is what they came up in. They came up in 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 a in a different business, and they know this is what they're supposed to be doing for their career. Do you want to do Do you want to sell records? Do you want to tour? Do you want to have this? This is what you need to do, and it's it just you know play along. So, and I don't even know if it's playing along. I I I, I really think that uh, kids these days are different. <laughs> they're you know they're um. They're friendlier. They're nicer. All these musicians. I have met so many, so many people who I really, really, really like, and uh, just as as people from the guy from Cage the Elephant to the guy the brothers in Dawes, to uh, even Arcade Fire, and you know, I mean, they're all super duper nice. Why do you think that's changed mm, compared to people, you know, artists in the past who have come in and have been intentionally antagonistic? Because I think that, like I said, it's the time that we live in. Um, and, and the way the business has changed. It's become more of a business, really. I mean, it's it's a festival business, you know, and, and uh, I don't know. It could be that, or it could just be that um, that millennials are really nice, are really friendly. Or very passive. Or passive. Speaking as a millennial <laughs> and engaging with other yeah, but like, the, but these people but these people are not very passive. They're very focused on their careers. Right, is what they are. Well, that's that's what's an amazing part to me. Seeing you conduct these interviews, how a lot of the bands come in and they open themselves up right away. There's mm-hmm. not that guard of I need to protect me. I need to protect my brand. They're very open with it. Right. I think they also see XRT and uh, someone who's interviewing them who is considerably older than they are. Um, but at the same time, isn't like an old guy. Mm-hmm. There's there's something there too. I think they they feel like oh this guy's pro. This guy knows what he's been doing this for a long time. Yeah, this is this is good. Yeah, I don't know. But you know, I also uh, yeah, you know, uh, the the, the uh, older guys, the older musicians who now are super nice. And Keith Richards may have been nice always. But I don't know. He was kind of messed up on drugs for a long, long time. I don't, you know, he was sarcastic and all that. Now he is the nicest, nicest person you'd ever want to talk to. And I've had the opportunity to interview Keith twice. And each time, again, you hear that voice. It's like the same thing. They walk in the room. You're like, oh, my God. But you hear this voice that says, uh, hello, Marty. Because we did it in a... We were in different studios in different cities together. Mm-hmm. So we're just sitting in a studio like this, and I've got the headphones on, and they're in the headphones. And he's like, oh, Marty, <laughs> this is Keith. And I remember saying, like, it is. Yes, it is. And then he goes, and I got the cough and wheeze, the laugh and cough and wheeze. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm talking to Keith. Frickin' Richards, how cool is this? This is some. I listened to this guy's records when I was like ten. Yeah, how nuts is that? Yeah. You know. So you mentioned earlier how some artists may be antagonizing to interviews, and that's part of their whole shtick. Have you ever found a situation where an artist who's notorious for that will come up afterwards and apologize, and their public persona doesn't really match who they are? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I remember one. One in particular. It was uh, a live from Studio X performance with uh, 
with a uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame member, I believe, uh, who's had uh, been in, you know, putting out records since uh, the late '70s, early '80s, and she and her band were playing a live from Studio X performance. It was at Martyrs, and I was told not to direct any questions towards her that the question should be directed towards the band. So I did that, and I, I asked a question of two guitarists who were new guitarists in the band by saying a lot of people have been in and out of the band. What's your experience like playing these songs that you've known for pretty much your whole life? Now you're playing them on stage with the band that did them originally, and she just butted in, and she said, oh, that's a crap question. <laughs> and I, I was kind of dumbfounded a little bit and I said well no I started arguing with her really I'm like well no not really I mean that's uh she goes no no what are they supposed to say you put them on the spot maybe this guy in the audience has a better question and she took it over and the uh guy in the audience asked a question but I was able to get it back by asking her about something that was totally unrelated Mm -hmm. to the band more of something that she did in her personal life a little business endeavor that she had and that uh completely changed changed the whole thing so yeah, and then she came up afterwards and she apologized. She said, uh, I'm, "I'm so sorry, you know. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know what I was doing. I, yeah. I, I'm really sorry. Is that cool?" And I'm like, "Yeah, sure. Now it is." But yeah. um, you know, so it, it, I, I felt like I was really on the spot, and that was early on in in the studio axes and the interviews and stuff like that. And I was, um, I thought I handled it okay. I listened to it recently for some reason because uh, we found it. And it wasn't anywhere near as bad as I remembered it. But in the moment, I was just, uh, I, how do I get this back? I right. was able to do it. But. Right. So that happens sometimes. But like I was saying, you know, most people are, are super nice. And even she ended up being nice, too. So Now, I want to I revisit a topic we were talking about earlier where younger artists, you can tell they're a little bit more reserved in their interviews. Um, they're still friendly, but you need to pull a little bit more out of them. When you've spoken... With artists, let's say like Spoons, Brick Daniel, you've had a long relationship. Uh, the guys from Wilco, you've spoken to numerous times. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed a change from the very first time you interviewed them up until now? Yes, yeah, and it's uh, funny that you would mention uh, that you would mention Wilco because uh, I had uh, Jeff Jeff Tweedy on my show on my overnight show. This was in like 1995, okay, and um, I had become uh, friendly with Jeff from hanging out at Lounge Jacks. His, uh, his wife, Sue, is one of the owners of Lounge Jacks. And uh, they weren't married then, but, you know, he spent a lot of time in Chicago. And uh, I would, you know, they'd close the doors of the Lounge Jacks, and he ended up staying for like another hour or so, having another, another beer mm-hmm. for some reason. But um, I was talking to Jeff, and he's like, I got this new band. I don't know. You know, Uncle Tupelo's over. Uh, it's this band called, we're calling it Wilco. I don't know. I don't know what we're going to do. We were recording a record now. So I, I had known that this was coming. So by the time the record came out, uh, and I think Wilco was doing a show, and uh, and Sue wanted to help the show, sell tickets for the show for this new band, Wilco. Uh, they came on my show overnight. It was like 1 o'clock in the morning, midnight, something like that. Maybe a little earlier. Maybe I was working 10 to 2. I don't know. But uh, Jeff came in, and he was super-duper nervous. And... Um, and he brought Sue with him because he it, it made him feel more comfortable. And uh, during the interview, I had him. He did perform like three songs from the record. He, I think he he did a box full of uh, letters. He did, uh, I think, 
passenger side maybe maybe something else but when he sang box full of letters he messed the lyrics up so that it came out i got a box full of records because <laughs> there's another line about records right? right so he he screwed that up and anyway uh it was it was, it was funny and I, th- I think sue has never let him forget about that so whenever Whenever he uh, he's, he starts getting a little too uh, maybe big for his britches or something, she'll just nail him with that. <laughs> and I've been there when, when she's done that a few times. But uh, now Jeff is the funniest, uh, most articulate, uh, great, great person to have on the air. He's just amazing. And he's, uh, yeah, he's, he's really witty and funny, and, uh, and I love talking to him. But that was, yeah, that was the first time yeah. well, that he had done something like that. Yeah, and that's something that, you know, I've, I've, I've admired just listening back on those interviews. It sounds less of a interrogation, a Q&A, or a rapid fire, and it just sounds like you're popped up in a, in a diner, in a booth, right. listening to two friends have a conversation with one another. Right, yeah, well, that's, that's the, those are the best, you know. I had one, speaking of overnights, this was the weirdest one. Uh, a filmmaker, a guy by the name of Abel Ferrara. Abel Ferrara came up. He made uh, like a B movie called Ms. 45 that was like a revenge movie. Like a, That would probably do real well now. Yeah. Right? <laughs> it was, like it a, was a woman who was uh, sexually assaulted who then became like a female version of Charles Bronson in Death Wish. Mm-hmm. Called her, it was called Ms. 45. Then he did a bunch of Miami Vices, and then he did a few more features. He did uh, the original Bad Lieutenant. He directed that with uh, Harvey Keitel. He directed another movie with Harvey Keitel and Madonna that, uh, that was out in the 80s. So I had him on my show because I knew this guy who owned an art gallery, and Abel Ferrara's wife was an artist, and she, he was showing her work. And he said, I can bring Abel Ferrara on. He sat, we sat there for an hour and a half on an overnight show. And I, I just let him play, find records and play records and stuff like that. And he told these amazing stories about working with Harvey Keitel and working with Madonna in a movie, how she came like super duper prepared. She was so ready to make this movie. She was so, she had it down. And then Harvey Keitel would show up like three hours late <laughs> and he'd come in and just say, so you're Madonna? <laughs> and and she goes, she'd say, yes. And he goes, all right, well, we'll do this tomorrow. And then leave. Oh, no. <laughs> I got to eat. I got to uh, go. Everyone's on Harvey's time. So, you know, that was, yeah, like 90 minutes. Of, I think, again, it's another one of those things that will never exist again. Right. You know, because we're not talk radio. Right. We're, we're music radio. Yeah. But well, maybe, maybe we'll bring him on as an honorary Marty then and share some of those stories. Ah, maybe. It lends itself well. Maybe we can bring on people who actually have stories about Martin Scorsese. There you go. Because we're probably not going to get him. Maybe not for the first episode. I mean, we can. I think we should aim our we sights should, high. We, but. Should, we should build up. Here's a guy who, uh, yeah, who was in uh, Goodfellas. Yeah. <laughs> Too bad Frank Vincent passed away. We probably could have got Frank Vincent. Yeah. Well, maybe there'll be someone from his uh, estate or that's, larger network. That that's the from. new podcast. Marty and Marty talk with people who know Marty. Because <laughs> we can't get any. Yeah, we'd have, probably have an easier time Marty finding Marty guests. Marty and Marty talk on. with people who can who who uh, who know Martin Scorsese. Yeah, <laughs> and that's what we're always building is to get Martin Scorsese on the sh- on the show. But until we can do that, we just talk to people who have had a brush with Martin Scorsese. I get a feeling this may be a endless quest. I like this. Well, he I think that's a, I think that's a hit podcast. Yeah. 
Uh, waiting I, for Marty. Waiting for Marty. <laughs> Marty and Marty are waiting for Marty. It's a very buzzworthy name. Yeah. I like it. Waiting for Marty. I like it. Well, until until that podcast takes place, we have this one right oh, here. Yeah. And I want to thank you again for- Are we done? Taking the time That's out. That's it? Soon enough. Soon enough. You're not off the hook quite yet. Okay. Uh, unlike, unlike our other interviews that we've done in the past, there's no mm. time limit here. We're actually going to stay here for, you throughout asked, the entire day. You haven't asked me that. So, so I listen to your interviews all the time. What's your favorite interview? Which one? I don't, I don't know. Who, who is, what has been your best interview? My best interview. What's the worst one? Spill who, the beans. <laughs> well, we've done that. We've done that. Yeah. We talked about Keith Richards, Eric Clapton, and... Uh, We're... I, I Luckily, wanna... I never, I, I never interviewed the replacements. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. Johnny did. Johnny Mars had that bad experience with the replacements. Right, that is totally documented, so it's okay to talk about. And I was just listening to their infamous Fourth of July concert, or mm-hmm. I was just listening to their infamous uh, Taste of Chicago concert. And that's that's not even an interview. That's during a whole performance. He just walks off. So I can only imagine what that's like oh, in yeah. person. Well, they came into the studio and they were s- sitting next to the Blues Records, and they pulled out. I want to say, was that Howlin' Wolf? Somewhat, some, um, I can't remember. I think it was a Howlin' Wolf record that had uh, a famous expletive in the song, and they pulled it out, and they said, hey, play this song. <laughs> <laughs> and Johnny Johnny didn't. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. It was like a huge F-bomb. And, it, and, and I, I, I talked with Bob Mirror. He used to write in Chicago for The Reader. He wrote a book called Trouble Boys about mm-hmm. the replacements, and we did a, I did an interview with him about the book, and evidently they pulled that same Similar pranks um, at a variety of radio stations. Okay. So I haven't had to deal with that. That's what I was talking about. Right. Okay? Because that's, a, you know, the replacements, God love them. Uh, they shut themselves in the foot, like, all the time. Right. A lot of these bands, for better or for worse, you know, uh, maybe they're too pro. I don't know. But they uh, they know what they want to do. Right. Is there one person that you haven't interviewed yet that you'd like to interview? Uh, in the music world. Someone who I, hmm, that's a tough one. I don't know. I don't know. Because when I think back on it, you've you've spoken to everyone there is. Who's left? I know. I know. I was supposed to speak with Jack White this week. Yeah. That's a cool one. Yeah. I don't know. Like, what's a band that uh, we haven't spoken to? You and I talked to, we talked to Sting. We talked to Sting. You talked to Sting. I filmed, filmed them. I never talked to a Beatle. I've never talked to Paul McCartney. Terry has. Mm-hmm. I've never chatted with Paul McCartney. That'd be fun. I've never talked to Dylan, which I don't know if I'd want to. On your personal wish list of your own personal favorites, who has been a highlight in speaking to? Um, boy, that's something you almost have to break down into. Uh, you have to break that down. Someone who I really enjoy talking to the most. I'll tell you this. <laughs> This sounds weird, and it wasn't a radio interview, but it's something, and you were there. We did it last summer at Millennium Park uh, before the screening of Wayne's World, and Alice Cooper was in town, and he was playing the next night, and they got Alice Cooper to come and make an appearance at the beginning of Wayne's World, and my job was to bring him out on stage and have everyone in Millennium Park at Pritzker Pavilion do the I'm Not Worthy I'm not worthy, Mm -hmm. I'm not worthy, right? Mm -hmm. But then it turned out that we did that, and he came out on the stage, and then it turned into an interview. I just started asking him questions. I I remember that. I was standing there with a microphone, 
and his wasn't working when he came on right away. So right. You, you handed him so I just, your and, microphone. And, and because we had had a conversation before, which was just blew me away, they put me in a room with him just to chat with him. In full makeup. In full makeup. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that was pretty cool. But the conversation with him was such a better uh, interview. Just I wish we had been recording that because he, w- he was telling Jerry Lewis stories. Because he, Ellis Cooper, is a member of the Friars Club with all these old comics in Los Angeles. Go figure. So he's best friends with like all these old old school comedians. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I don't know. It's funny. He plays golf with them. Social media plug. I recorded that conversation you two had on stage. It's on our YouTube page right now. Really? YouTube.com slash ninety three XRT. Probably on Facebook also. But yeah, if you want to go look at it. Had to oh, that's XRT's he, YouTube page, and we'll have it. That's where he uh, how he he came up with oh about uh, the Milwaukee uh, the, Mo- the Milwaukee scene, and and what was it he said? Uh, it was uh, it was really scripted out or something. You know, I'm not I I can't recall off the top of my head what he said. Yeah, but it was it was a really funny anecdote about recording that scene. Right. I, I want to say it was partially improvised. And how they had a general outline for how it was going to go, and one of the actors—he came up with the Milwaukee thing. That was it. That was him. Yeah, he came up with the. Uh, well, you know, it's an Indian <laughs> uh, Indian word. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's cool. Mil- Milwaukee. But it was yes, Chicago. And then he did a thing about that. Um, but that was cool. It was cool talking to Alice Cooper. I never thought I'd have an opportunity to talk to Alice Cooper in a million years. Right. I mean, where 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 is that going to happen? Right. And it, and it did. So you know, you always got to stay open. You never know what's gonna what's gonna come up, what the opportunities are. And uh, there was a time I think when I would go, oh no, I don't want to do that. Oh no. But now it's kind of like, oh yeah, yeah, let's yeah, why not? Yeah, who cares? Yeah, I wish I had talked to Tom Petty. Yeah, I never talked to David That's Bowie. Tough. I would have loved to talk to David Bowie, but uh, Tom Petty especially because I think that would he just, it was just such a cool laid-back guy. I could have talked to him about Florida because my sister lives near Gainesville. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember <laughs> when his uh, in his passing, Terry shared a story about interviewing Tom Petty. I think it was in 2002 uh-huh. where it was one of those situations where she was going to be brought up to his hotel room, and uh, it was all very planned out, and she walked in there and could tell that he was feeling down and that she had to pull a lot out of him. Oh, because he had just come back from performing in the George Harrison uh yes. Tribute the tribute concert, concert yeah. right? I think that was that was overseas also, so he may have been jet lagged. Jet lagged, yeah. It was and, like, the, like the day before. Yeah, but it, it it's funny that we're talking about this now because she said a very similar thing where uh, all it took was her bringing up one thing, and all of a sudden the gates open up, and right. he becomes casual. It's a conversation, mm-hmm. and you could tell that he's into it. And then afterwards, she's saying he was the nicest guy. We spoke for about ten minutes afterwards. And he just said, you know, thank you, thank you. This is such a great conversation. I find it incredible being on the other side of these things, not on the mic, seeing your ability to bring that out of artists. Right. You know, you want to see really uncomfortable interviews? <laughs> Always. <laughs> Guilty pleasure. Well, like in uh, Don't Look Back, the uh, the Dylan documentary from the 60s made by D.A. Pennebaker, and it is amazing. Like, it was before there was, like, rock in music press so they would send someone from the paper to interview Bob Dylan in England right and and it would just be so antagonistic so great to watch that it's 
unbelievably uncomfortable and it makes you never want to interview anyone. <laughs> if I have any aspirations, don't watch that movie. <laughs> <laughs> if you, well, yeah, yeah. If you ever want to, yeah. Well, that's <laughs> don't do add it. A, add it to the list because uh, guilty pleasure of mine is queuing up a YouTube playlist of interviews gone terribly wrong, and there's some sick humor that I find in that. Really? Yeah. You've done this? Uh, maybe. Where can Admit I? It. You have you we'll, have a YouTube playlist we'll, of uncomfortable interviews. I'll, we'll, we'll talk to you off. How many? About it. <laughs> how many? How many am I a part of? Oh, I haven't seen any, Marty. Never. Oh, nice. Ever. Um, well, let's you know before before we wrap things up. Speaking about you know aspirations, there's a, a new generation that's coming up in a different age in which you can conduct interviews. People not only just speak in person or over the phone. A lot of them are. Email based. I mean, right. I've, I've done it with a couple of artists where yeah. I send over a Microsoft Word document with a list can of questions. Tell which ones are you can tell which ones are are uh, text. Yeah, and it's or, not it's it's <clears throat> not fun because you try and style your questions like you're speaking in a conversation, but it's really bland. So that being said, with all these with the different mediums in which people can conduct interviews, you know what what's a piece of advice you give to those who have interview aspirations? Um. Well, I can only give advice concerning what I've done and the way I do things. And again, I would say, first of all, uh, don't be nervous. Don't be afraid. And the way to, to alleviate that, to get past it, is to be really, really prepared. Preparation is, I mean, you may not use any of it, but it, it puts you in the, uh, the right frame of mind and the right focus to talk to someone because you've spent a, a serious amount of time being um, somewhat obsessed. It's almost like a stalker thing. I mean, you're, you're obsessed with someone, so you know all this stuff about them so that you can get a, get a, a sense of who they are and you can be more comfortable. I, I, I would I, Preparation is everything, I think. I mean, just going to something cold, you know, I can't do that. Yeah. But um, – that and also listening is a huge part. I mean, like you interviewing me is kind of difficult for me because I'm generally not on this side of it. So that's nice that you've been able to do this as a conversation. That's another part. But uh, listening is, is a huge part to hear that question and to hear the answer, to listen to the answer so that you can use that answer to go to your next question. And it's not just, okay, my next question. You right. Know, you're not doing it like that. You're listening. You're having a conversation like you would. Listening is the hugest part of it. Preparation, listening, <clears throat> and and also, um, I don't know. Just you're just having a conversation with a person, right? You know, right? Um, and also to have an, a sense of what this interview is actually about, right? You know, if someone's coming in to talk about their record, like we said before, you're not asking them personal questions about their life, right? Right. You're well, not, that's not what this is. Right. You know? Right. You want to get a, and and I think that's where a lot of it falls short is where you have people that are trying to get something else out of right. the interview. Where the whole reason that it was set up in the first place was to talk about a specific issue, and mm -hmm. sometimes it works out, but in my observation, it can fall flat on its face right. frequently. Now, unfortunately, my style is kind of long form, and <laughs> for radio, I don't know if that's. If that's you know the best, because you do have to do a certain amount of editing, but um, the kind of interviews that I really never like to do aren't really interviews, but they're games mm -hmm. that you play with an artist, you know. And some people can do that, 
um, and some people are into it, but you have to know you have to know who you're talking to. Right. You know? And I've seen that just like fall apart or see someone who is making the interview more about them because it's their show. You know, you're not um, David Letterman and even he would let people talk. Right. You know what I mean? Uh, I think we've seen that at uh, at Lollapalooza with uh, certain people from radio stations in other cities who, you know, they've got some morning show and they're doing this like it, they're just wasting everybody's time. Yeah. And that, that's been a huge exposure when we've been in the media area, yeah. how, how different our interview style and setup is compared to uh, other radio stations. And I think Ultimately, that gets reflected in when you're listening back on the conversations, mm-hmm. what you're getting out of the artist. Right. I know your job is to find uh, things that you can that you can uh, social media out or get something that gets clicks or whatnot, always be viral. Know? Yeah, to go viral. But I think you can do that, but you shouldn't be asking questions that are designed to do that. Right. Well, and I, I think I think it's great. You know, you guys you guys do a great job of naturally bringing that content out. It makes it mm-hmm. easier for me to pull an engaging headline and say, "So and so reveals new details about the album or their main inspiration about this album," because those questions get asked organically. Right, and I also like it when the interview's over. And you're like, "Wow, I had no idea it was going to go there." Mm-hmm. I mean, I've at Lollapalooza of all places, and. It's funny because uh, it, 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 in both cases, it was not premeditated. It just kind of went there. And uh, I did uh, interviews with both uh, Regina Spector and Modest Yahoo. Okay? Mm-hmm. With Modest Yahoo, we ended up talking about uh, fathers and uh, patriarchy and Hasidism and how music is such a huge part and joy of uh, of being an Orthodox Jew, and that because I asked him, I said, "How does this go over at the Home Office?" I mean, it seems like it would be really conservative, and he's like, "No, it's all about music, and it's about." Me. And we talked about fathers and my dad and his father. I mean, it was just it went on, and it's it's over. And I remember looking at uh, at Norm, who was there, I'm like, "Wow, how did we ever get in, into that?" You know, and. And then with Regina Spector, we talked about what it was like being a, a Russian uh, immigrant in the United States. So, because her mother was there mm-hmm. for some reason, mm-hmm. and uh, it was like a conversation at a festival that really wasn't about her record, but it was about being a Jewish uh, Russian immigrant and what it was like being in Russia during the Soviet Union and then coming to America and finding all this freedom. And someone was over. She's like, "Wow." I wasn't expecting to ever talk about that. Yeah. Well, it's got to be fulfilling for you. It is. It is. I don't know, you know, playing a snippet of it between songs on a Saturday afternoon if it works, but it was uh, for long-form stuff, and they just, you know, put up to watch. It it was pretty great. Right. Right. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to do this was to flip the tables on you. Right. You're always the one asking questions. I want to ask the questions. Marty, let me ask I'm you a curious. question. That's not what this is about. We'll yeah. save we'll save we'll save that for the Marty podcast. Coming yeah. at a later date. On the Marty? Oh, we do Marty Marty? Yeah. Mar- Marty on Marty? No. Or waiting Marty for Marty and Marty waiting for Marty. <laughs> there you have it. And and we can say that at the beginning, and this in fact this could be the first episode, a little tease of what's coming. It's two guys named Marty who whose goal is to have a guest. Marty Scorsese. That's our goal. This is why you're the pro. 
So we have to start out. We have to find. Um, it'd be great if we could find Marty's who know Marty, but it may just be all working towards them. You know what? I'll tell. I'll tell you what. We'll ask our listeners to do right now. If you've made it this far, and you want to hear the <laughs> Marty on Marty, I feel so waiting good. for sorry. Marty. Podcast. I feel so sorry for you. <laughs> Send us a list of recommendations. Either email us at xrtcomments at wxrt.com or just leave a comment on this Facebook post or wherever you are interacting with us right now. Let us know. Let us know of a Marty we should talk what to. What Marty's, yeah. Like we've already said, we could find Marty Booker, yeah. former wide receiver <laughs> for the Bears. Marty Bennett. Any Marty Cubs? Uh, good question. Off the top of my head, I don't know of any. So far, we only have Chicago Bears. Marty Booker and Marty Bennett. When I used to collect baseball cards, I would take the Martys and put them in a separate stack. Well, it's totally deserving. Yeah. Martellus Bennett. Yeah. Martin Van Buren. We could bring him back. (laughs) Talk about what's it like having a street that's under an L track. They give you a street, Martin Van Buren, but it's it's under it's it's under L track. Quite noisy. Not not the ideal place to be. How does that feel? At one time, it was all like um, pawn shops. Yeah. That's a bad. That's not a great street, Martin Van Buren. Do better for our name. I know. Yeah. Well, right. until until that happens, we will uh, conti- continue on this topic. And once again, I want to thank you for joining me today. Oh, you're on so Inside welcome. the Archives podcast, Marty Leonard. It's your voice behind all things Lollapalooza. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Once again, thanks to Marty Leonard for joining us on Inside the Archives and having the tables turned on him. He's usually the one that is interviewing people, but now he becomes a subject. So that was a great conversation, and we'll see if the uh, Marty and Marty podcast becomes something that materializes in the future. So stay tuned on that. All right. In the news, the Smashing Pumpkins have officially announced their shiny and oh-so-bright tour, featuring three-quarters of the original lineup, Billy Corgan, James Eha, and Jimmy Chamberlain. They'll be performing at the United Center on August 13th, and throughout this entire tour, they're going to be performing material exclusively from their first five albums. That's Gish, Siamese Dream, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, Adore, and Machina. So, longtime Smashing Pumpkins fans will be excited from that prospect, but there's also the elephant in the room, which was Billy Corgan and Darcy Retzky's very public feud they engaged in ever since the news came out of a potential reunion For me, that grew a bit tiresome to cover over the past couple of weeks, so I'll give you a quick recap in case you are completely out of the loop on what's happening. Darcy Retzke received a partial invitation to participate in the reunion where she would only play a couple of songs with the band every single night, similar to what Steve Adler did on Guns N' Roses' reunion tour. She wasn't really buying into that and publicly called out Corgan and the band, and the two went back and forth with one another until a couple of days ago, Billy Corgan finally said, he's not going to talk about it anymore. So that's where we're at right now. Corgan commented that he's not going to comment on it anymore, and it's been a stagnation since then. So I'll be curious to see if the ship has sailed on that feud and the Pumpkins will move along into their tour and album cycle without that whole situation uh, in the back of everyone's mind because it seems that it was... uh, nasty public feud with one another and to Darcy Retzke's credit she opened up in a lengthy interview with a website Alternative Nation and spoke at length I think the author said they spoke for almost four hours and condensing it down into one blog piece was a heck of a lot of effort but 
definitely a worthwhile read if you want to get her perspective on the entire situation, as well as some naturally interesting comments she made about Billy Corrigan. In other news, Radiohead surprisingly announced a tour, and they're going to be opening up the tour in Chicago with two shows at the United Center on July 6th and 7th in support of their latest album, A Moon-Shaped Pool. As a big Radiohead fan, I'm thrilled by the news, but also pretty surprised that they're touring this quickly after appearing at Lollapalooza. Radiohead is one of those bands who will take some time in between tours, may not tour unless they had just recently released an album or are about to release an album. If they are going to drop a surprise album on us, that'd be fantastic. And also something that Radiohead could be doing, but that's only speculation on my part. Either way, it's really exciting to see him come back and play at the United Center. Their past couple of times in Chicago have either been at Lollapalooza or at the Hollywood Casino Amphitheater in Tinley Park. And for me, it's going to be cool to experience them in an indoor venue. Uh, I don't know off the top of my head the last time they played in an indoor venue in Chicago, but for Radiohead fans who haven't witnessed that before, it'll definitely be a treat. And I think two shows at the United Center will be the highlight of many people's concert-going summers. Another item that came across was an interview that Vicki Cornell did with Good Morning America, and it was her first TV interview ever since the passing of her husband, Chris Cornell, in May of 2017. Um, She was pretty blunt during her interview with the circumstances surrounding her husband's death and the events that led up to his death. She told the interviewer, approximately a year before he died, he was prescribed a benzodiazepine to help him sleep. He had torn his shoulder. The pain in the shoulder was waking him up at night, and it was keeping him up. She also added, the brain of someone who has a substance use disorder is different from that of someone who doesn't. He relapsed. Cornell had been battling addiction for a long time in his life, and his wife revealed that he had been sober since 2003, but because of his prescription to that pain medication, he ended up relapsing about a year before committing suicide. Uh, she was adamant in saying that Chris Cornell was not a junkie or a drug addict, saying, Our family was his everything. As soon as he got off stage, he was a dad. He was a regular dad. He was not some rock star junkie. Good Morning America also spoke with Dr. Richard Cote from the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine, who conducted the independent analysis of Cornell's autopsy, and he revealed that two drugs were found in his system at the time of his death that may have resulted in impaired judgment. Cote told Good Morning America, they were not at levels that would have caused his death. In other words, it wasn't an overdose, but what the two drugs did individually and in combination was to really impair his judgment and make him psychically unable to be responsive in ways that he normally would be responsive. Judging by his wife's statements and the statements by the doctor, it was a really unfortunate circumstance in an attempt to treat pain that led to Cornell's death. Um, And here at XRT, we are continually mourning the loss of Chris Cornell, and all that he provided to the music world will always be in remembrance with us. So before we wrap things up, I want to touch on one other news item that came across that I think has the potential to become a trend in the near future. Uh, Chris Moon is a producer and currently splits the songwriting credits for the Prince song Soft and Wet from his debut album For You. Moon has put his ownership portion up for auction on eBay with a buy it now price of $490,000. So if you, you know, you got that money lying around, you may want to become an over of a Prince song, but... It's not the price that caught my eye, even though it is a high price. I think it's the whole idea behind it I find really, really fascinating. 
producers, songwriters, lyricists, anyone that has some type of ownership stake in a song have generally been pretty protective of that stake. And I can't recall a time, this could be me being young and naive, but I can't really call a time where something was made this publicly available, let alone for an artist like Prince. Now, Prince's catalog is so extensive, and while the song Soft and Wet is iconic for being on his debut album, it doesn't rank as the Prince song to own, as if Little Red Corvette, 1999, Raspberry Beret were going up for sale. But still, it's a unique opportunity for someone to spend a lot of money to get a piece of Prince's art. On a personal level, I think it's bizarre because you're basically buying songwriting credits. You didn't go through any process creatively or operationally to become a part of the owner of that song. But from a business standpoint, I think Moon is pretty progressive in saying, listen, I've gotten all that I can get out of this song, whether that's his own uh, creative needs have been satisfied, his financial needs have been satisfied, and he wants to spread the love to other people. So it is a pretty cool step that he's taking just to make that available in that sense. And someone who has a ton of money doesn't know what else to do with it or just massive Prince fans want to pool together some money, it could be cool to buy that for them. And I think just knowing that you own that is going to be a rewarding feeling. That being said, I would not be surprised if this is something that we see happen more often in the future. And I'm surprised that it has taken so long to get to this point where people are putting their ownership stake in music up for public sale and up for auctions on websites like eBay. So that'll be an interesting story to follow. The auction is currently going on as of recording time, and I will be interested to see if it ends up fetching $490,000 or if someone even makes an offer for it or if this falls flat on its face because it could be something that occurs again in the near future. So that's all the time that we have for today. Thank you once again to Marty Leonards for joining us on Inside the Archives. If you want to get past episodes of Inside the Archives, all you need to do is go to 93xrt.com slash Inside the Archives, and you can find a full list of podcast episodes that we've done. Also, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of our handles are at 93XRT. And if you're listening to this podcast on iTunes or any other podcasting service, be sure to leave a review and submit a rating for us. It makes me feel good to know that people are listening and enjoying. I hope you're enjoying it. If you made it this far, enjoying the podcast. Uh, it's a fun thing that we've started doing here at XRT. And for me, it's been a joy to uh, host it and to speak with our DJs. So once again, for 93XRT and Inside the Archives, I'm Marty Rosenbaum. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.